Hello, welcome to a veteran shriek of vodka production of Article 15. Here at Article 15, we are attempting to bring both awareness and an end to veterans, 22 veterans committing suicide every day. We speak to everyday veterans with everyday issues for vets acclimating back into civilian life. Today, we have a Bobby Joe Whitlow. No, she is not a NASCAR driver. She is an Air Force veteran who served from 91 to 1993. She served with the United States Air Force and was medically retired in 93. Hello, Bobby Joe. Welcome aboard. Thank you for having me. Of course, sister. You are, I I have to put this out there, you are my very first female veteran. And I am proud to have you on board. So in 91, Desert Storm is hitting. And Bobby Joe Whitlow was like, hey, I'm going to go join the military. What what made you decide this? Well, prior to me joining the military, I was actually a dependent wife of a, a Air Force survival instructor. So I was already kind of familiar with the military life. And when we divorced, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't have money for college. I knew I didn't want to be in my hometown. Um, I was ready to get out and see the world. And so I thought, well, if my ex-husband can do this, I can do this. So he <laughs> actually, screw that guy. Well, he actually took me to his recruiter um, after our divorce. He took me there. So we, we had a, a friendly relationship, even though we were divorced. So I enlisted. That's pretty awesome. You know, and I, I, I tell a lot of these young kids nowadays, and I say young kids dating myself, a life hack. For anybody who is looking to change things up, move out of your hometown when you're in your 20s, in your early ages, 20s, early 20s, whatever. Move out of your hometown. Go see something else. So we hopped into the Air Force. That's pretty awesome that you got, you know, at least somebody familiar to you, your ex-husband. You know, he he looked out for you a little bit. Um, what do you think that you've benefited from being in the military? Wow. <laughs> a loaded question. I know. Um, I would say it gave me some some sense of uh, normalcy. I felt safe, at least initially, and I had the structure I needed in my life. And, you know, joining the military, for my mom, joining the military gave her a sense of relief because it wasn't like I was just saying, well, I'm going to move to California and live on the beach and you know, do what I can do. She knew that I had, you know, Uncle Sam to watch out for me. So I, I enlisted and I took off within a few weeks. And so I guess, you know, it was, that was basically what I was looking for. But I had, I had gained a sense of patriotism as a dependent wife, not to the level I ended up um, becoming uh, you know, a patriot, but you know, there's a lot of reasons why I joined. Wanting to serve our country was probably first and foremost. Wanting to see the world, wanting to prove to myself what I was capable of, wanting to go to college someday, but not really at the point where I knew what I wanted to do. So, I just, uh, I just thought that if I joined, all of that would kind of fall into place eventually for me. 
Gotcha. I got you. I was, I was kind of somewhere in the same area when I, when I was uh, first signing up for the Navy. So not to, to depend a bash, but you have been on both sides now. What is the difference now that you, you were married to somebody in the air force, you, you, and I don't like to use the dependopotamus idea. Um, but the person who was in a, a dependent, and then you've also put on that uniform. Do you look at like other dependents and be like, no, Karen, you're not getting saluted today. You need to just go ahead on base and call it a day. Or, I mean, how, how do you see this? Well, I think, you know, I was 19 when I became a dependent wife and we were married for about two years. So I was, I was really pretty young. Um, Mm -hmm. It was my first time away from home. We'd moved clear across the country to, from Iowa to Washington state. And I really didn't know a lot about the military when we first married and moved to our first station. You know, I didn't, we didn't live on base. Base housing was hard to get. We actually, it was almost two years on the waiting list. And the week our divorce was final, I got a call saying we can move on base. So I I said, go on to the next person because that's not going to happen. But I don't know if some of it was my age and my maturity level. And maybe some of it was just, you know, being a new wife and, and not really understanding fully what my husband was going through at the time when he walked out our our door and went to the base. I, I formed somewhat of a bond with some of the other um, wives, but when you live off base, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily live near other dependent wives. I I was Spokane, which was a really large town compared to what I was used to. And the people that worked with my husband and their, their families all, we were all spread out because the base was only, was about 45 minutes from where we lived. So mm-hmm. there were a few people that I had formed friendships with, but, you know, I, I would shine his boots for him. I'd iron his, his uniform. I'd listen to his stories, those he could tell me and just kind of, you know, did my thing. He was gone a lot on TDYs for his training. Um, so I would say two and a half to three weeks a month, he was not home with me. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was kind of a lonely thing, but it made the times that we did have together special, but they had told us as dependent wives, when, when we first got to our station out there at, uh, at, uh, uh, Fairchild air force base that, um, I think they said something like 75% of the survival instructor marriages fail. And I thought to myself when they said that, well, that's not going to happen to us. Um, but it did. And it happened to, all but one of the other wives that I was friends with. Um, so the marriage, you know, the, the statistics for being married uh, in that particular uh, career field was, it was a challenge. It's tough. And then, um, you know, every branch has their, has their really rough patches. I know, I know some active duty uh, army Marines, when I was active duty Navy, I watched grown men crying on the back of our ship, trying to get served back in the day when you used to walk around with your cell phone like this, trying to find service, you know, trying to get in touch with their wives and hearing their kids crying in the background. I mean, that's rough. That's a rough gig. I, I, I told myself when I was active duty that I'd never be married in the military. I couldn't do it. Um, and lo and behold, I wound up doing it. 
And then I said, I'd never have kids while I was, you know, in the military and I wouldn't deploy. I wouldn't do that to them. They didn't sign up for this. And lo and behold, I wound up doing it. Um, but I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with all that. Now you left all that behind the, the dependent life and you went and put on the uniform and I respect that. I got the, you know, my veterans are my heroes. That's how I always put it. You signed your name on that dotted line. You are my sister in arms. I respect that. I appreciate what you've done. Off to Lachlan Air Force Base we go. <laughs> I got to spend, I think, two, two and a half months there for Master at Arms School, which I wound up uh, getting kicked out of for underage drinking. However, uh, it was still a very nice base. And I, did you guys wind up going to Afterburners? Is that still down the street? No, it wasn't there. It was a place called, I think it was a place called Afterburners that was down the street from Lachlan. Went to boot camp. And then was there schooling afterwards or what happened? After we had basic, I and, and several people from my flight were transferred to Goodfellow Air Force Base where we were going through um, military intelligence training. I felt very fortunate to be in that career field. It would open up a lot of doors for me once I got out. Unfortunately, when I joined the military, I really didn't know the difference between a bomb, a bomb and a missile. And when I was going through that training, we had to know all of the U.S. weapon systems. We had to know the weapon systems in other countries. We had to know how China's, this particular weapon system in China compared to our version of that weapon system. So we had to know a lot of things. And that's a lot. It is a lot. I don't learn in a classroom quickly. I'm more of a hands-on person and it was pretty much all classroom. So I eventually washed out and it was right after that, that I ended up having surgery on my heart. And, and I was on medical hold for like a year where I stayed at Goodfellow and eventually they reclassified me. And I went to training at Wichita Falls where I became an air transportation specialist and was transferred then to Travis. Okay. So then you wound up, when, when did you wind up getting the heart surgery? Uh, that would have been, if I can remember correctly, uh, like January of 1992. Okay. And it wasn't supposed to be surgery. It, it started out, I was having a lot of palpitations. My heart would race. Even if I was sitting watching TV, my heart would just take off on me. And I think a big part of it was the anxiety that came with all of the intense training that went on with the intelligence career field. Mm -hmm. And so I'd gone to the doctor, they, they did a bunch of tests and they said, you know, there's this new procedure we want to do on you. It's going to, we're going to ablate or burn off a piece of tissue on your heart. That's causing your electrical impulses to kind of uh, go in a circular way and rebeat and it would race. And they're like, it's fantastic. It's got this really high success rate. And so I agreed to do it and it was supposed to be an, outpatient procedure. And I, uh, my ex-husband who had actually taken me to his recruiter to get me signed up in the first place, drove down from Spokane to San Antonio and was there with me when I was having this done. And I remember being in the, uh, in the room where they were doing the test. It was an operating room, but basically they were just making an incision down in my groin area, threading a, a catheter up to my heart area where they would burn this piece of tissue off. Unfortunately, the doctor, which he was one of two doctors in the military at the time that did this particular procedure, um, made a mistake. And when I heard him say, 
the F word, I knew there was a problem. Shut the front door. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Please continue. Please continue. <laughs> um, shortly after I heard that, I was out because I was awake while they were trying to do this. And then he said that and I went under. And I don't know if it was because of the change in my heart or if they gave me something to knock me out or what the deal was. But um, when I woke back up, I was still in that room. The room was cleared except the doctor. And he said to me that he had accidentally ablated or burned off my AV node, which is a really important part of your heart. It's the secondary thing that makes your heart beat. And at 22, I had complete heart block. My heart would not beat by itself any longer. So he told me at that point, we have to install a pacemaker for you. And so he did. And I remember telling him that he needed to call my mom, that he screwed up. He needed to be the one to tell my mom what happened. And so he um, did. Luckily, she worked at a hospital and had a doctor there with her that could kind of explain things after they got off the phone. So after the procedure, I went back to my room and I was there for a few days. And then I had someone come in, a representative of the hospital, and tell me that they were going to um, start the process to kick me out because I wasn't up to regulation anymore with the pacemaker. That's such a military thing. <laughs> it is. Like, sorry, you're no longer up to regs. We're going to go ahead and kick you out. Like this was your fault or something. I just gotten out of basic. I had worked really hard, put myself through things I never thought I'd put myself through and was working my butt off trying to get you know, trained in intelligence. And then all of a sudden it was all for nothing. They wanted to kick me out, but I fought it and they let me stay in. And at the time, uh, once they decided to let me stay in, I was the youngest person in military history to ever serve with a pacemaker. There'd been a few people allowed to do it, but they were like colonels that had made it a life career. So to be an airman, and them say, yes, you can stay in, but we're reclassifying you was pretty amazing at the time. Schwartz-Davidson Law is a Texas-based, veteran-friendly law firm. Credit and debt is a big game and one rigged for you to lose. The system's designed to keep you in it, spending money and juggling different types of accounts so lenders feel more comfortable lending you money. Worse credit equals worse rates, and there's no shortage of companies trying to collect. Negative reporting is an attempt to collect a debt. So what happens when a debt collector or credit bureau makes a mistake? What happens when they refuse to fix it? That's when it's time to lawyer up with Schwartz-Davidson Law. Call the folks who started in credit restoration, got a law degree, and have been holding the credit bureau's feet to the fire to protect consumers and help you take hold of your financial future instead of letting the anxiety of it run you. How do you get a debt collector to stop calling? Let them know you've got an attorney. How do you get the best deal on a settlement? With an attorney, you don't have to break the bank to fix your credit or deal with debt collectors. Contact the attorneys at Schwartz Davidson Law for a free consultation and let us go to battle for you. We're here when you need us. Sounds good. Stop it. You wound up leaving uh, where you got the, uh, that was at Lackland, you said. You wound up leaving there and you headed to where? Uh, I went to Wichita Falls for about six weeks for air transportation training, and then they transferred me to Travis in California. Okay, that's not too shabby. Travis ain't that bad. So you wound up finishing up your time in Travis and getting out. Mm -hmm. So now that we're getting out, we're saying, when was this? It was 93, what month? 
it was summer of 93. I started out processing and got out. Yeah. What was the rest of that year like for you dealing with leaving medically and trying to understand where the next step and everything is going to be happening? Well, I didn't want to, you know, I fought to stay in and my intention was to make, make it a career. I wanted to go to school, become an officer and all of that. And so I got to Travis during the summer of 92 and by November of 92, I found myself in a situation of being, uh, I don't want to call myself a victim because I don't see myself as a victim, but I experienced military sexual trauma. And there was, you know, I, I, at the time, I didn't realize how rare it was, but I did report it. And OSI, Office of Special Investigations, did a, a huge um, investigation. They interviewed 42 people that lived with me in the barracks, found out that this guy had done the same thing to two other women. And when the investigation was concluded, OSI had written a big report saying that their recommendation was that he be discharged dishonorably because he was a detriment to Travis Air Force Base community. Um, I was called into my colonel's office and told that even though that was a uh, recommendation from OSI, that his decision was to make this guy go to two AA meetings because he'd been drinking. And um, that was it. He didn't lose any stripes. He didn't get kicked out. Nothing happened. And then he proceeded to put me at attention and tell me that it was my fault and that I was asking for it. And at that point, I knew I had to go. Uh, Between that experience and the heart experience, um, I just, I had to get away. So um, I started the process to uh, begin getting out under medical retirement. And that happened fairly quickly. The other thing that my colonel had said to me at the time was that I needed to not think about it, not talk about it, just put it away and don't unpack it. And that's exactly what I did. And so when I got out, I didn't think about it. I didn't deal with it. I started going to school. I became a teacher. I taught for several years. So when I got out in 1993 until about 2013, that's how I lived my life, pretending nothing happened to me. In 2013, it all came bubbling out. And um, I started to spiral in a way that I never expected. Um, I became addicted to prescription medications. I was drinking heavily. I was self-harming. My husband and my daughter didn't know what to do with me. Um, I was just a hot mess. I had no value in my life. I I, um, went through bouts where I wanted to do a lot of self-punishment because All I could hear was the colonel saying, it's your fault. You ask for it. And eventually I ended up in a treatment program, actually two back to back and um, started dealing with it. And it required me, I had to move out. I was in Cleveland and then Boston. So I was gone from my home for about six months. And when I got back, um, I was different. I was better. I wasn't using drugs anymore. I wasn't drinking anymore. I wasn't self-harming, you know, and I just got back on track. I started back with my teaching and 
that sort of thing. But I was, I was different and I, my personality changed and what I wanted out of life was different. I really didn't enjoy teaching anymore. And so from that time on, I just kind of went through cycles. You know, I'd be doing okay for a while, be doing really well for a while. And then I would crash and not be able to get out of bed and not want to shower and go through bouts of self-harm again. And so I have my good days and I have my bad days. Um, And it's, you know, it's a constant, you know, checking in on my meds, making changes, I, I go to the VA probably three to four days a week to meet with various people. And, you know, it, I guess I'm kind of coming out of a spiral right now, but when I'm in the downward spiral, things are bad. And uh, my husband's learned um, over the years how to handle me and to help me when I need it. And, you know, initially when all hell broke loose, he didn't even think there was such thing as mental illness. He, he thought you just need to get your shit together and, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. And now he understands it's a real thing. And yeah, this is what exactly. And I don't, I'm not condoning what that Colonel did, but exactly what the Colonel was saying is what we as men have been doing for centuries. You know, just don't think about it. Just move on, go back to work, get your, get your shit together and just forget about it. That's all you got to do. And then everything will be okay. And then little by little it comes out. And just like you're saying with having, you know, good days, good times, good spirals, bad spirals and everything like that. When you're up, you're up. And when you're down, it feels like the only thing you could think about is everything that's negative. And you're, you're just, fighting trying to climb up a muddy hill and get out of this dark spot right and so um i no longer teach i am i call myself a domestic goddess <laughs> so that is my career or my uh, job title right now but i also do some volunteer work with a nonprofit and you know my life is what it is and i'm very grateful for the fact that i don't have to work and i have my disability coming in to help with the bills and things. Um, and that's what I think I, I, if I still was working or, you know, wasn't able to stay home, I think I would be in a much worse place than I am right now. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, as an active duty member, I didn't think much of sexual assault. I, I really didn't. I was accused of it and it was a lie. And it was the scariest thing in my life. And I advocated against uh, a lot of females because of that. And it, it really, it was a civilian girl. We were at a party. Both of us had been drinking. And then she found out that I had a girlfriend that I had cheated on. And she contacted the girlfriend through, and this is again, dating myself through MySpace. And it, from there, they wound up going through, um, NCIS and no, it's not like the TV show, but I was contacted by NCIS. I was taken off my ship in handcuffs. I explained what happened. Everybody else at the party had the same exact story as me. And it wasn't a military party. It was a civilian party. Um, The only person who had a different story was her. Um, And I don't mean to demean what she said or how she might've perceived it was much different than what we were. But for what I understand, it was very mutual. 
And until I would say probably 2008, 2009, when I was in Iraq, did I really start to take these type of accusations serious. Uh, I was in Balad, like I said, and I was part of the uh, Panther Airmen Advisory Council. It was the 332nd, so the Panther was their was their thing. So we were called the Pack. It was the E4 and below little group that uh, got to meet up on whatever, and we were able to bring our gripes and complaints to the uh, Chief Master Sergeant of the base, uh, as well as the One Star General of the base. So I would be able to get to meet. They wound up making me their president. I was the one sailor that was out there and they made me their damn president of this air force group. And, um, I would meet up with these guys. So one of the other guys that I was out there with, he was an E five and he wound up becoming the vice president or president of the five, six club that was out there. And they found out they were trying to help out with budgeting or something like that. So they found out there was so many lights that were busted out on the base that they wound up replacing all of the lights that were on that base. They not only did they find out that their, their spending had gone down, but they found out that a significant amount of sexual assault reports had gone down as well because the lighting became better. That, that really scared the, the shit out of me that these reports, although not all are made, as we have found out through the military, because of situations that you went through and those other two females that you were talking about didn't report it because they don't want to be out on a pedestal. They don't want to be out on a podium out in front of everything. They don't want their name dragged through the mud. They don't want to deal with all of it. But the actual reports that were being made went down significantly because of better lighting. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, what in the world are these military people doing? This is terrible. And that's just a small base. Well, not a small base. It was actually a rather large base. But that's just a piece of a, a very, very small pie inside. You know, we're in Iraq. And this is all supposed to be military professionals. And then I think to myself, like, all of the bases across the United States, all of the females across the United States, I was thinking to myself, like, what in the fuck is going on here? And this is terrible. So I've always taken it more serious approach when, when I hear these accusations and it it breaks my heart when I hear this stuff that, you know, he doesn't lose stripes. He only had to go to AA. He didn't lose stripes. He wound up just going to another unit or he goes to another ship or he goes to this, or he goes to that. We had a female that had to come to our ship. She was, I, I believe she was charged with sexual assault for her boyfriend. They were on the same ship. Um, and she came down to his rack or something like that. I don't, I don't know the whole story. And I, that's the other part. Nobody knows the whole story. It, you have to take the two stories, but you never, I I would never say you are asking for it. That, that is something that you would say that would haunt you for the next 20 years. This is your fault. That's, that's, that's a heartbreaking thing to hear that you could have made a better career or. Figure, figure at least uh, finished off your four years and then made a, another decision if you wanted to stay in or not. But without that, with this colonel, uh, somebody that a leader that you're supposed to look up to, supposed to trust somebody to make a better decision. And then to find out that this guy also had two other prior incidents that people came forward. This is why females 
are two times more likely to commit suicide than those who have never served before. When somebody looks you right in the face, somebody that you're supposed to, you know, salute and respect and say, you are asking for it. This is, this is your fault. That is by far the worst thing I've ever heard from a leadership standpoint. Right. Well, and you know, I hear, I hear different things in my head every day. Sometimes at this point, it's something that my attacker said during the incident or whatever, but by far what I hear in my head more and what I struggle with the most is what the Colonel said to me, because I would say living with um, someone that I trusted to look out for me and to make it right to, to have that person say those things to me was almost as bad as what I went through for the military sexual trauma itself. Um, well, you think, lose all sense of trust that this is your leadership that's supposed to be looking out for, for your welfare and right. it, and he let you down. And I think that what he said and the way he handled it is what feeds me with the self-punishment and the self-harm. You know, I don't even know that I think that much about the actual attack um, on a regular basis at this point, but I hear his voice in my head every single day. And that's the challenge I live with. You know, as a law enforcement officer uh, as well, outside the military, for those who do, and I, I'm not going to say that it should be happening, but for those who do have some type of sexual trauma experience, if it happens, whether it's rape, some type of sexual abuse, report it immediately. The faster you can report it, the faster, and I know it sounds bad, to get a rape kit at a hospital. You don't have to come to the police station. You can go right to a hospital, and the faster you can report it, the faster we can catch these predators. They do not belong right. in the, our military. So please, please, please go to a hospital. Do not shower right away. Don't change your clothes, anything. Bring it all with you. This is from a law enforcement standpoint. The more evidence that we have, the more likely we are able to catch this predator and put them away. Amber and Amanda here. We want to tell you about our good friends over at Scale Executive Search. Scale Executive Search is a veteran-owned and operated executive search firm serving aerospace, tech, and startups. They've managed to set themselves apart by not only understanding the job market, but also ensuring their candidates and clients are invested in not only their careers, but also themselves and their families. How have you been able to, if they've given you tools or medication, what, what have you used to help you? Obviously, in 2013, you said you were spiraling completely out of control, abusing prescriptions, uh, alcohol abuse. So, I mean, it was all there. What have you done to combat not only um, the alcohol and prescriptions, but things that, as you said, you, you're going through right now? What healthy means have you gone used? I got involved a few years back with an organization just as a recipient of what they offer, um, an organization called Healing at English River Outfitters. And it's a veteran resort in Washington, Iowa. And, you know, I I'd go to retreats, women's retreats that were being put on. Um, and I got to know the female veteran coordinator pretty well. And 
it was the end of 2019. I got a phone call from her and she said that there were things going on in her life that she needed to have more time to focus on and that she was stepping down as a female veteran coordinator. And she wanted to know if I wanted to take over. And I thought about it. I talked to my husband about it and I called her back and said I would. And then, you know, we had, I had like an interview uh, through Zoom with the uh, president and the uh, secretary on the board there. And, you know, I I told them what I tell everybody at this point, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm, I don't half ass it. I do it with my full ass and uh, that's what I've done. So You know, it's given me purpose. Um, It's brought me together with a sisterhood of women that get me and that I get them. I've helped women with how to prepare for comp and pen exams, uh, what to do, what not to do. You know, I get emails from them saying, hey, you know, thanks so much. I just got 100% after fighting for 12 years. I, we have retreats for women. We went whitewater raft, not whitewater rafting, sorry. We went uh, river floating. Um, we're looking at doing whitewater rafting in the future, doing a MST awareness motorcycle ride in June. Uh, we did a photo shoot last year where we had, I had female veterans that wanted to participate apply. And the focus was on disabled veterans. I didn't specify, you know, what the disability had to be, whether it be physical or mental. And, you know, up until last year, I thought, you know, because I was here on the news, how um, the military is taking, you know, this tough stand on MST and, and they had zero tolerance for it. So all these years I've been thinking, well, at least things are better for women. At least this isn't really happening very much anymore. And then when I took over this job, I realized that's not really the case. And when we did the photo shoot, the women had to write their trauma story and it became part of a calendar along with their picture. And as I'm retyping their trauma stories, it dawned on me that all 12 of the models for our photo shoot had experienced MST. And I realized it is no better than it ever was before. And that just... It just disgusted me. It angered me. But, you know, I always look for reasons why things happen. Um, I rely on my faith a lot. And, you know, I think if I hadn't gone through everything I went through, I wouldn't be able to help others that have gone through the same situation. I'm amazed at how many women reach out to me that say, hey, I've been out for 30 years. I never allowed myself to think about what happened to me. And now it's all bubbling out. And I'm like, Hey, I, I get that. So, you know, it's what I really enjoy is the immediate bond you form with somebody who's a veteran. My husband is kind of scratching his head. Like you don't even know this person, you know, why, you know, why are you able to connect with them? Why are you inviting them, you know, to stay at our house the night before an event because they live far away. I'm like, they're my sister. You know, you don't get it. I'm telling you, this is the way it is. This is our community. This is our brotherhood and sisterhood. Very rarely have I ever been burnt by another veteran. And so just what I do with with Hero has just given me a purpose that I haven't had in any long time. Yeah, you know, I, I my wife gets on me about the same stuff. 
meeting random veterans whenever it, it always seems like we'll go and travel somewhere and the next thing I know it, I'm standing up in some random person's wedding and they're like, who, who is this person? I don't know. Was, we, they served, I served, we're good friends. It, yeah. that's, that's just how it is. We, and, and to be able to connect with somebody, not just on a veteran standpoint, which is fantastic. You know, I, I see the hats that, you know, Iraqi veteran or just Navy or Marine Corps and, you know, you call them out on it. And like when you serve and it's like you mess with each other. And then from that point, you know, you have a trust right there that you guys both signed that, that dotted line. But from, from the standpoint where you're coming from, for female vets who have had uh, sexual trauma, that, that is, you know, not not just military, but females in general, something that it, it just being in each other's presence, you guys already know. It, it's something that it's you already know, and it's not something to be ashamed of or embarrassed of that you're in good company, that somebody who is sympathetic to your cause and something that you have gone through and you know that they feel have felt the same issues that you have gone through. And it's, it's, it's an unspoken thing that you guys just automatically, like she has, has dealt with the same things I have. I know that she is going to be, you know, mindful of my own issues and she's going to get what I'm, if, if you're having one of your bad spirals, uh, just a bad week, they automatically, like, I already get it. I already know I got you. You know, it's like when I find a um, a veteran, male, female, that is just having a bad day and just know that like, they're having a bad day. Maybe they just need to talk. Maybe they need a big hug. Maybe they need just a, a, a time, a breather, whatever it might be. Maybe they just need a campfire and a couple of beers and a couple of good friends just to talk and get whatever it is off their chest. And that was one of the things I was going to say to you is, you know, and I tell my wonderful producer, Amanda and uh, Amber, to make sure that they take time for themselves. Amanda is working her butt off to try and get this veterans drinking vodka off the uh, off the ground, as well as uh, the Article 15 podcast, both of them. And she was burning the candles at both end of the stick. And I, I, I you know, you got to take time for yourselves, you, whether, whether it's just take a weekends off or, you know, whatever you have to do. And then on Monday morning or whatever day that you want to start back up, hit the ground running and get going at it again, but make sure you're taking time to just decompress and get a lot of that stuff off your chest. A lot of the big TikTok creators, I am on TikTok. Yes. Uh, a lot of the big TikTok creators were burning themselves off, uh, burning themselves out. Uh, I, I was watching this when I first got in and I was watching a lot of these guys, they call it mill talk. I don't know if you're familiar or veteran talk or whatever it is, but a lot of them were like, I need some time. I need some time. That's all I kept hearing. I was like, I need, I'm going to be taking a break. Like you get, you got to take a break for yourself, whether it's just get your mind right. Your family is, is, is for me, family is priority. Military, <laughs> military was my priority. When I got married, military was my priority. My daughter was born, military was my priority every single time. And then uh, I became a police officer. Military and police officering was my priority because that's what was paying the bills. I have to give 100% to that. And I I was half-assing being a father. I was half-assing being a husband. I, I was not here. Even when I was here, I wasn't here. I was on the phone call. I'm an E6. I was taking the phone calls. I was on the conference calls. I was... 
and then I realized like when I die or when I leave the military or the police department, it's going to continue on. If anything happens to me, my family comes to a complete standstill right? and they are completely traumatized or whatever it is for the rest of their lives. So right. prioritizing my family first was, uh, was the biggest kick in the nuts. And then, you know, now that I'm almost retiring from the Navy, I'm like, nah, I'm in my twilight. If you really, really want to piss me off, come and ask me a stupid question. I'll give you a stupid answer. And then with the policing, it's, it's another one that they're going to continue on whether I'm there or not. I'm going to make sure that my family is 100% first. One of the first things I did when I became the female veteran coordinator is I put together a committee of women to help me get things done. And, you know, you're exactly right. I just said to them not that long ago, you know, Hey, I'm going through some shit and I'm not going to be as on top of things as I have been. And I'm going to need you guys to step up. And I've always had a problem with delegating, but this year that's the magic word for me. And, um, it's allowed me to continue to be the wife I want to be and the mom I want to be. So. And that's important because when you, you find yourself half-assing anything in your life, you know, for some of us, it's, you get upset with yourself and then you get mad at those around you because you believe that they're taking up your time of what you want to prioritize, but you have to understand which one is, what's going to be the biggest focus. Do you want to be a good mom, good wife, or do you want your family life to fall apart and you have to use coping mechanisms such as work to, to fill those voids and then realize at the end of all of it, it's going to continue on without you and you're still alone at the end. Right. So that, um, yeah, not that I wanted to go off on a rant, but that's, I, I try and tell some of these younger guys, these younger married guys who are like, Oh no, it's fine. The wife understands like they'll understand for so long, buddy, but sooner or later, you're going to have to recognize that you got to be, oh, no, she likes taking care of the kids. I'm going to, no mom is just like, oh, yeah, this is the best job ever. <laughs> There's days where you have like poo, literal poo in your hair, somehow boogers on your shirt. There's, there's food in places there's not supposed to be food on. And it's just all you want is a shower just a hot shower, you know, a regular essential of life that, right. you know, to breathe and not wake up and have a kid just. Yeah. Yeah. Go to the bathroom without little fingers coming up underneath the other side of the door. Like mom, 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 can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? You know, uh, for, for my guys out there, for anybody who's listening that just has a wife, has kids, Take the kids for one weekend. I don't give a shit where you go. Take the kids for one weekend. And when you show back up on Sunday afternoon, tell me your wife doesn't look fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. Tell me because, man, it's a world of difference. Go to a hotel room. Go to a motel. Go to your parents for one weekend. Don't tell her to go somewhere. You go somewhere. Let her be in the comfort of her home. Let her put on a pair of socks and pajama pants and a hoodie and walk around the house all day and mind her own business and not worry about 
when's the next snack, when's the next lunch, when's the next play date, how are you going to get them here, how are you going to get them there, who's cooking the dinner, who's cleaning this, who's cleaning that. Show up on Sunday and just see how radiant she looks. Yeah. I guarantee you it'll save everything in your life. Yeah. Not to not to go on a rant of things that I had to learn the hard way. We would like to give a huge thanks to Rafa 180. Rafa 180 offers pure medicinal CBD and products made locally. They walk alongside individuals to achieve a healthy lifestyle with options needed by each person. You can learn more about them on Facebook at Rafa CBD, their website www.rafa180.com or email at rafacbd at gmail.com. They truly believe your journey matters. So we're moving on. And this this hero program, I would love to hear more about it. If the, if if we have other female listeners, and I hope I do, um, and they want to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to contact you for this hero program? They can contact me through email. And uh, my email is gypsy junk market. Gypsy spelled G-Y-P-S-Y, junkmarket at gmail.com. I uh, also, I'm not going to give it out here, but I can give out my phone number if somebody reaches out to me and I can let them know, you know, anything they want to know. This is a co-ed organization. For the guys, a lot of it is about um, hunting and fishing and outdoors activities. We have a, a lodge and a, a beautiful piece of property. We're actually building a brand new lot. We're in the process of that. And the women can do any of the activities the men do. The men, however, are not necessarily allowed to do the things that the women do because of their comfort level and the high number of people that have experienced MST and just don't trust men. So I have to be really cognizant of that. But that being said, you know, we talked a lot about MST and, and women uh, you know, I, I worry about the men because there are a large number of men that have experienced MST and they don't report it because it's, it's too shameful. It's too embarrassing. You know, there's lots of reasons why the men don't come forward when they do. And I just, you know, I just don't want to not recognize that this happens to both sexes. So yeah, that's, you know, that's the one thing I, I did want to make sure I made a point of with MST. Our organization is entirely run by veterans. Nobody gets paid for what we do. We have a board and I'm on the board now. I'm the board secretary and uh, we have a hunt coordinator and um, we do hunts in our on our property within our state. Um, our hunt coordinator goes to Texas for boar hunting and, and Maine for I think it was bear they were hunting or something like that. Nothing ever costs a veteran anything to do anything with us. Unless, of course, it's a fundraising effort. All activities are paid for. All food is paid for. There's usually gift bags that they get to go home with or, you know, whatever. We also have, there's been people on our volunteer staff that have driven through the night to save veterans in another state from themselves. Um, That's pretty amazing. It is. And the whole organization was started by a man named Chuck Gertz, who was in the Army and the Marines. And he just had this passion for building this this community. And um, in August of 2019, he and his brother went out to Colorado for a veterans conference. 
And they are, as are a lot of veterans, myself included, they are motorcycle riders. And they were coming back home, going through uh, Kansas City, and his bike went down and he was killed. That was two weeks after breaking ground for our new launch, which was his ultimate dream. It devastated veterans throughout our state. It devastated the biker community. My husband and I rode out with, there were about 500 motorcyclists that rode to the Western part of the state to escort his body back. And so, you know, we're as a staff trying to fill his shoes and it's a big job. When he um, passed, he was cremated and they were pouring the foundation for the new lodge. They did put some of his ashes right above the doorway in the foundation. And so we're just trying to do what he would have wanted to carry on his mission. And so we, you know, we try in any way possible to help veterans with whatever they need help with. But, you know, we have a saying, you mentioned uh, campfires, you know, our philosophy is the best work we do happens around a campfire. And we always have campfires at our events, you know, and that's where people really feel comfortable talking. And uh, so it's, it's, I can't say enough good things about it. There's just amazing awesome. people that work there. And where is it located at? Washington, Iowa. Our staff is kind of spread out. Some people live close to the um, property and other people like myself live an hour away, come together as a staff for meetings once in a while, you know, and we do our events and, you were saying that it doesn't cost the vet anything if, say, the vet is in Florida, right? Southern tip of Florida. Yeah, it's a rough life down in beautiful <laughs> southern tip of Florida. But they are looking to head there. Do you guys hook them up with a ride or a plane ticket, or do they try and figure out something to get there? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. That is the one thing we don't cover is transportation. If there's, okay. you know, if somebody's in Florida and they want to come to a retreat and somebody else in Florida or in Tennessee or Georgia, you know, along the way, we, you know, we try to help with, you know, hooking up people to ride share and that sort of thing to help ease the burden. But that's the only thing we don't provide is transportation. If they can get to us or where we're having our event, then, you know, uh, food and accommodations and, you know, supplies, they're all covered. I got you. Is there a website or a donation page that people will be able to donate to? Absolutely. Our website is EnglishRiverOutfitters.org. Also, we have a Facebook page um, for Healing at English River Outfitters. And then separately, I have a women's Facebook group called the Women of Hero. And so if you get on Facebook and you're a female veteran and you go to the Women of Hero, you will um, have to answer, I think there's three or four membership questions and then you're approved. And so whether it's my group or the organization's page or the organization's website, you know, you're going to find events that are going on. You can get information about how to donate. You know, we're, we, we do a lot, you know, with it being a nonprofit, we have to make the money somehow to fund the activities we do to fund the new lodge that's being built, you know? And so we're doing things. We're going out into the community to try to earn um, money. COVID has hit us hard. 
And as it has everyone else, money is a little tight, but like the shirt I'm wearing right now, we're selling those for fundraisers. Um, the calendars we did as a result of the photo shoot last year, we sell those for, for um, fundraisers. And we have a lot of other fundraising activities coming up, including the um, MST awareness ride that's going to be happening uh, at the end of June. So Awesome. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear all this. I thank you for coming aboard, you know, and sharing your story with us. I, I know it's never easy. If you could say something to veterans or even military members getting out to help them assimilate better to the civilian life, what would it be? Well, one thing I, I would say is file your DD-214 with your courthouse because you're I've had to go back and get it from the courthouse. I don't even know how many times in the 30 years since I've been out. So that's going to make your life easier. Also make a copy of your medical records. Don't leave it to the military to hang on to those because things go missing. And so those are just kind of some housekeeping things I would recommend. Probably the number one thing beyond that is just to get yourself involved with the veteran community. Even if it's just joining um, support groups at the VA, get yourself hooked up with uh, American Legion or Veterans of Foreign War or, you know, any other uh, veteran organization. Surround yourself with people that know what you've been through. You're going to find yourself not only with new friends that get you, but a group of, you know, family members pretty much that, you know, you can count on. And, you know, there's no one like the veteran population and what they're willing to do for one another and how much they need from one another. Don't isolate, get yourselves hooked up with people to get you. To everything I've been saying, you don't happen to have seen the VFW magazine that came out like a month or so ago. They did a tribute to female veterans. No, I didn't. Oh, you missed out. A friend of mine was the cover of the VFW magazine. Cool. Her name is Leilani Zoe Magneta. She was a sailor. She was the reason I know her is because her husband, Mike, one of my good buddies that I uh, served with out in San Diego, he's a retired E9 of 30 years, just class act. She has been advocating for uh, homeless female veterans. I'll be sure to get you her information as well as reciprocate, get her your information. I'll be up at Great Lakes this weekend and they live in that area. She is now a trustee, I believe, in Gray's Lake. Unbelievable. She does the marches. She was Miss Veteran USA runner up last year or the year before. I can't remember which year, but she is constantly out doing something all the time, she is amazing, and I'm just surprised you haven't met her yet. But I will definitely make sure that you get her information and she gets your information so that you guys can talk maybe a little bit more about fundraising and everything else. Uh, other than that, thank you so very much for joining me and being the very first veteran, uh, female veteran here on Article 15, uh, which is a Veterans Drinking Baca production because whenever there's Veterans Drinking Baca, there's definitely going to be an Article 15 to follow. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my experiences and about Hero and the great things that we do. And I hope that some of your listeners or all of your listeners reach out and find out more about what we're about. Of course, Bobby Joe. Again, thank you so very much for joining us. And 
God bless. Thank you.